Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. We continue our series on the second half of world history with the 33rd podcast. In the 32nd podcast, it was focused 100% or entirely on Vietnam, not only as a once independent country, but through its history of colonization by Great Britain, France, and then eventually after World War II, leading to what became known in America as the Vietnam War. We ended that podcast by looking at, with the war winding down, an era of what was called detente, which was an easing of tensions between the U.S. and the USSR. However, with Richard Nixon, the 37th president of the United States, responsible for initiating and carrying out that policy, it was sidelined because of his domestic problems with what became known as the Watergate scandal. So as we talked about, too, his successor, Gerald Ford, attempted to carry on with it, as well as Ford's successor, Jimmy Carter, the 39th president. The problem, again, is with the domestic issues going on after the fallout of the Watergate affair, Watergate scandal, excuse me, as well as, of course, or unfortunately, due to the oil embargo causing a severe energy crisis in the United States, let's face it, the United States was preoccupied. And by the late 1970s, detente as a policy was deteriorating. At the same time, a former Hollywood actor and governor of Illinois by the name of, governor, excuse me, of California by the name of Ronald Reagan, who was a native of Illinois, was decrying that policy and saying that stronger leadership was needed from Washington, D.C., specifically the White House. And he campaigned on a more aggressive approach with the Soviet Union when he ran against Jimmy Carter in 1980. In the fall of 1980, when Ronald Reagan ultimately was elected, coming into office in January of 1981, at the time when Carter was would be going out of office with one of the most tense situations of any outgoing, arguably uh, of any outgoing American president with the hostage situation in Iran, where 52 hostages were being held since the invasion of the embassy back in November, Carter had truly worked to the nth hour to truly his last minutes as president of the United States on the morning of January 20th, 1981, ultimately securing their release which is what happened. However, technically, the news of the release became worldwide in the minutes and eventually hours after Ronald Reagan had taken the oath of office at noon. So with that crisis more or less on Carter's watch and the release on Reagan's watch, it would add to the negative reputation and reviews of the Carter presidency. Despite the way Ronald Reagan campaigned, and what we'll look at in this podcast episode 
is how Ronald Reagan wanted to attempt to try to take a different approach with the Soviet Union. Despite his harsher rhetoric as a campaigner, he definitely was willing to soften his approach with the Soviet Union in relation to the Cold War as President of the United States. Reagan was known to have a, use a phrase, and anybody that worked with Reagan, whether it would be his time in Hollywood or whether when he was a speaker for General Electric or when campaigning, eventually governor of California, he often used the phrase or question, do we have our glasses on? And what that meant, what Reagan meant by that was, are we looking at the problem the way we always have? Or is there a fresher approach and different view if only we had put our glasses on? That phrase was a very personal one for Ronald Reagan that dated back to his early childhood. Growing up in Northern Illinois and playing in the Rock River, Ronald Reagan was not an exceptional child. He was a poor athlete. He goofed around in school. Grades were not good. And more or less just family kind of wrote it off that that's just going to be our kid, kind of a haphazard, happy-go-lucky kid. Until one day when the Reagans in the 19, late 1910s, the Reagans, Jack, his father, and Nell, his mother, Jack and Nell were riding in a cabriolet with a uh, large back seat. And as they were riding to a picnic on a warmer afternoon, the temperature started to rise and Nell took off her hat and threw it in the back seat between the two boys and then it eventually took off her glasses. Well, boys being boys, Reagan's brother took his mother's hat and put it on, making Reagan, of course, giggle with glee. Not to be left out, Ronald took his mother's glasses and put those on. And when Ronald Reagan put those glasses on, he immediately jumped up, which was a good thing that it was a convertible, but he immediately jumped up and screamed, look. And the, his father, Jack, slammed on the brakes as Reagan bumped into the front seat and the glasses fell off a little bit and he scrambled to put them back on. But he's called to his brother and to his mom and dad and said, look, look all around. Look at those trees. Look at the birds. Look at those people out there. Listeners, Ronald Reagan was extremely nearsighted. As a result, he couldn't see several feet in front of him. Clearly, he couldn't see. He couldn't make out fine definition. And that story resonates with me because I remember the first time putting on a set of glasses in second grade. And truly, the world opened up to me. It came, the world went from a shady, hazy, gray environment to one that is alive with color and movement and clarity and definition. So with that, with Reagan getting his eyes checked, shall we say, after that day in the park and getting a set of glasses moving on from there, suddenly his grades accelerated. He became a star athlete. His world really did open up to him and he never forgot that experience. So when Reagan took the oath of office on January 20th, 81 at noon, one of the first things that he approached for his domestic and national security advisors was to ask, 
I am, since the 33rd president of the United States, I am the seventh president to have to deal with this conflict called the Cold War. So I want both teams to work independently and then together to analyze what did Harry Truman all the way through Jimmy Carter, Reagan, of course, his immediate predecessor, from 33 to 39, what did they do to handle the Soviet Union and the Cold War? What were their common denominators? Did any of the administrations try something different? But I want to know what they're most important, what were the common denominators? So both teams got to work. And as that was going on, unfortunately, John Hinckley was trying to make the president of the United States, the 40th president, the one that is elected in a zero year, to also die in office as every president elected in a zero year had done going back to 1840. However, the devastator bullet missed Ronald Reagan's left lung, or got embedded in the lung, but missed the heart by about three millimeters. That did a lot to get the public to really support the president. And he pushed his advisors to continue on with the research because he wasn't going out in a casket if he had had anything to do with it. And of course, thankfully, he didn't. Regardless of politics, we never want to lose a leader. You don't want to lose anybody due to an assassin's bullet. But shortly after he became home from the hospital after his assassination attempt, or the attempt on his life, on March 30th, 1981, his advisors approached him and more or less said, Mr. President, it appears as though the common denominator was to more or less just monitor the Soviet Union, avoid confrontation at all costs, suspend incendiary language, in other words, to handle the Soviet Union with kid gloves. Reagan sat back, your recommendation? They said, well, we recommend the same course. And Reagan said, okay, so that if I do this for the next four or possibly eight years, we're going to have a 41st president who's going to have the same problems I do then. Well, yes, but considering that's the Soviet Union that has 21,500 nuclear missiles pointed in our direction, we do recommend that that's the safest course of action. Reagan wouldn't have it. So rather than, again, getting immediately into this, this difficult situation with the Soviet Union and continue with the Soviet leaders, he wanted to take truly a different approach. And what Ronald Reagan did to the then Soviet leader, Leonid Brezhnev, was not to go through the usual Pentagon or State Department communication channels to try to communicate with Brezhnev directly. He wanted a one-on-one -on -one with Brezhnev. And what he did, and this may sound comical to my listeners, but he hand-wrote on loose-leaf paper. Can you imagine a president of the United States handwriting a letter on loose-leaf paper? But that's what he did. Put it then on White House stationery and sent that directly to Leonid Brezhnev. When his advisors took the letter from Ronald Reagan, they said, Mr. President, we will get this to the State Department for a translation and get it right off after. And he stopped him and he said, no, I don't want an American translation into Russian. I want Leonid Brezhnev to read that exact letter as is and interpreted for him from his advisors. They hesitated, but Reagan held firm and the letter was mailed. It really was a personal letter 
asking to put history aside and try to engage on one-on-one conversation between the Soviet premier and the president of the United States. All Reagan received back was a canned response. More or less, we are not interested. Reagan was beyond disappointed. So he started having then his national security teams continue on with the research on developing perhaps more effective nuclear weapons and looking for different places around the globe closer to the Soviet Union to put those missiles. But then in November of 1982, specifically on November 10th, Brezhnev died in office and he was succeeded by Yuri Andropov. This next Soviet leader, Ronald Reagan, then penned another letter and sent it to him. Once again, it was rejected. Because of that, Reagan decided to push on with the pledge to fund the SDI program. SDI is the Strategic Defense Initiative, critically dubbed by the Democrats. Of course, Reagan was a Republican, but dubbed by his Democratic opponents, as the Star Wars program, making mock fun more or less that it's a program that will never work. The premise behind the Strategic Defense Initiative was to have satellites in space that the moment a nuclear missile came from an enemy country, it would be destroyed in outer space and fall harmlessly black back into the atmosphere and burn up upon re-entry. It really was putting a laser shield over the United States of America, and then to be extended to our allies. The Soviets were stricken with fear over this. And that's why Reagan responded once again, let's talk. But Andropov again refused. Another break came when Andropov died on February 9th, 1984, succeeded by Konstantin Chernyanko. Once again, Reagan set pen to paper and shot another letter off to Chernyanko, who also refused it in the same canned response as his predecessors had done. Reagan, this time in an election year, was very open with the American public about what he was attempting to do with the Cold War, and to say that they rewarded him with it would be an understatement as Ronald Reagan would be the second president in modern American history to win 49 out of the 50 states. The only state that Reagan lost, and it was marginally, was the state of Minnesota, because that's where Reagan's 1984 Democratic challenger was from, the state of Minnesota, Fritz Mondal. Walter Mondale came in as a Democratic nominee, but never could find his footing with the campaign, and Reagan won the Electoral College in a true, as well as the popular vote, in a true landslide. Not too many weeks, literally less than two full months of Reagan in his second term, gets the news that Soviet Premier Konstantin Chernyanko has also died. This is now going to be a fourth premier coming in on Reagan's watch, who has only been in office just over four years himself. This man, by the name of Mikhail Gorbachev, came into power on March 10th, 1985. And if you roll your eyes when I say this, I don't blame you. But Reagan once again set pen to paper 
and shot off a personal letter to Mikhail Gorbachev, congratulating him on his new succession to the Soviet premier, condolences for the loss of Chernyanko, just the way he had done the prior premieres. This time, Reagan got a different response. It was a personal letter written in Russian on regular type paper penned by Mikhail Gorbachev, who Reagan's Russian translators then translated for Ronald Reagan. And Mikhail Gorbachev accepted the president's offer to meet face to face. It would be the first meeting of an American president and a Soviet premier that would meet not under dire tense circumstances or as a result of an international crisis, but they were meeting because they wanted to. The meeting for the first time, when they met, everything was orchestrated. It was an understatement to say that when Ronald Reagan and Gorbachev met, because it was cold outside, Reagan was tempted to keep his coat on, but he didn't know if the Soviet premier was going to keep his coat on. It didn't want to appear that Reagan's coat would be off and Gorbachev would be on or vice versa because it could make the other one look weak. Despite the fact that they're meeting under friendly circumstances, that's how much tension this international meeting was on both heads of state. So it was quickly ironed out that the presidents and the, the president and the premier would keep their coats on when attempting to walk in front of the press for the first time. They smiled, they shook hands, they walked into the meeting room, and it didn't last long. Reagan became so frustrated that when Mikhail Gorbachev talked, that three different American-Russian translators would then translate to, the, to President Reagan what Premier Gorbachev said. Ronald Reagan replied, and the same thing would happen with three different English translators to Russian for the Soviet premier, and they weren't going anywhere. Reagan could see the frustration on Gorbachev's face. Reagan clearly was showing it on his. Finally, he stood up, he threw his hands in the air, leaned over to the Soviet premier across the table, and invited him to join him in a walk down the path in the back of the building, where they eventually parked themselves in a type of a, like a cottage where there was a fire going with just one translator each. And he warned his own advisors to stay put. He pleaded and asked his Soviet advisors to please stay put. One translator is all that's needed because I just want to have a conversation that has nothing to do with politics or international relations. Reluctantly, both sides' advisors agreed to stay put Ronald Reagan then with Gorbachev, who clearly looked concerned and confused, followed the president out into the cottage where both men sat, and President Reagan leaned over and shook Gorbachev's hand again and said, please call me Ron. That was translated, and, the Gorbachev, and Gorbachev's face softened considerably. His stance softened. He smiled. And he shook Reagan's hand again and please said, please, Mikhail. Then Reagan said, Mikhail, where were you born? What was your childhood like? What made you cry? What made you laugh? What scared you? 
and Reagan also shared his information. Listeners, this meeting went on for over an hour when both men came out laughing and smiling. This talks would be rescheduled for another day, but now the meeting between both countries, the tension or the ice to say that it thawed was an understatement. The ice had practically melted and evaporated away. The talks on limited arms reductions uh, that started the next day went flawlessly. Reagan then pushed ahead and said, well, what about reducing more of our different types of weaponry rather than just the intercontinental ballistic missiles, the worst of all nuclear weapons? Gorbachev agreed and they pressed ahead. Everything was going flawlessly. When Reagan finally got to the point and said, I can't believe as an American president I'm saying this, but I truly have nothing more to ask of you. I am so encouraged by the way both countries are going to slowly eradicate our nuclear stockpiles with Soviet's 21,500 weapons and America's 19,600 plus weapons. But that's when the shoe dropped. Mikhail Gorbachev put up his hand, more or less to motion just a moment, and Reagan leaned in. What, please name it. And Mikhail Gorbachev asked Ronald Reagan to eliminate the SDI program, eliminate the Strategic Defense Initiative. Ronald Reagan was dumbfounded. The SDI program was truly the legacy of his first term, and American scientists and the military were making strides in that direction to create a nuclear shield. Ronald Reagan, however, wasn't to be put out by this. He said, Mr. Gorbachev, or Mikhail at this point, I've got a better idea. Why eliminate the program when if I create that program, your nuclear missiles, no matter how many you have, will be useless, correct? And Gorbachev says, yes, yes, that's, that's what I'm saying. I'm glad you agree. And that's when Reagan said, no. Then let's not get rid of the program. Let's get rid of the missiles. And Gorbachev says, yeah, that's what we agreed to. Right. But that's for you and I. We're not the only two nuclear powers in the world. You know that and I know that. Gorbachev readily agreed. So why not, Mikhail, instead of eliminating the SDI program, why don't you send your Russian scientists and military to the United States and we will create this together? Reagan, when he sat back waiting for the English translators to talk about this, Gorbachev's demeanor soured significantly. He shook his head. He turned red, said, no, that will never happen. Reagan said, why? It will be a joint Soviet-American project. But Gorbachev couldn't do it. The talks, by and large, had stalled because of SDI. Was Reagan being stubborn? by keeping the program on the table at all cost? Or was it Gorbachev? Later on, much later on, long after Reagan unfortunately would come down with Alzheimer's, so he may have never known this, 
But Gorbachev later admitted, long after he himself was out of power, that the reason he couldn't agree with SDI were for a couple of reasons that Reagan and the Americans probably could not have comprehended. Number one, the fact that Gorbachev, while clearly being open-minded himself, knew that if he came back with a set of signed agreements that allowed SDI to remain active, that he truly could have been put out by his own close-knit group of advisors. Gorbachev may be open-minded and looking towards the future, but that doesn't mean his comrades in arms were, and he knew this. Secondly, he knew that if he sent Soviet scientists to the United States, that most likely they would never return once they were exposed to Western culture, freedom, and ideas. And a third reason, and I get chills when I think about this, the reason also that SDI had to come off the table from Gorbachev's perspective <clears throat> is because he knew Excuse me. He knew that if America wanted to create that program, by and large, we were going to do it. As Gorbachev said later on, splitting the atom was absolutely impossible until the afternoon of December 2nd, 1942, under the squash courts at the University of Chicago in Illinois, when the uranium atom was split for the first time in what became known as a controlled nuclear reaction. From December 2nd, 1942, a handful of uranium atoms were split. Fast forward, not even three full years, to August 6th, 1945, the splitting of a few uranium atoms in a controlled nuclear reaction led to an uncontrolled nuclear reaction that was detonated over the city of Hiroshima, Japan, and wiped out that entire city. Three days later, plutonium atoms were plunged together and wiped out Nagasaki. The rest of the world that had the funds, the means, the education available to them we're barely trying to figure out what atom and what isotope could possibly be split. And the United States in less than three years was splitting two different types of atoms. And we all knew what was on the menu shortly after that. What we dropped over Hiroshima, Nagasaki, that's child's play compared to what happens when you fuse two hydrogen atoms together and you harness and replicate what's going on in the Milky Way galaxy's sun called the, a star called the sun. That's a thermonuclear weapon. Nuclear bombs like Hiroshima in Japan wipes out the cities themselves. Thermonuclear weapons, which we have never used in warfare, thankfully, those wipe out cities, suburbs, countrysides, and on and on. There almost is no comparison to the destructive capability. Because of that, Reagan had to keep SDI on the table at all cost. But because of Gorbachev's reluctance, 
the talks largely fell apart. Yes, they would meet again in future nuclear arms talks, but the agreements and the achievements they made never matched nor even paralleled what they had on the table in front of them during that first discussion between both leaders. When we return, we're going to find out a little bit more about Mikhail Gorbachev, because as the Cold War comes to an end, don't mean to give away the end of the story there, but as the Cold War comes to an end, I don't want my listeners to think that it was 100% orchestrated only by Ronald Reagan. Clearly, he was key. Hands down, he was an absolute instrumental part of the eventual ending of the Cold War. But it wasn't him alone. Reagan needed an open-minded, future-oriented Soviet leader, and he found it with Mikhail Gorbachev. But the question is, why and how was Gorbachev different from every one of his predecessors? What made his mind an attitude different. Ironically enough, he grew up in the Soviet Union. It's not like he grew up in another country and was exposed to Western ideas. No. He, his childhood was no different than his predecessors. But what happened to Gorbachev and changed his tune going forward had nothing to do with what was coming out of the United States. Rather, it's what was going on with America's neighbor to the north, Canada. It would be when Mikhail Gorbachev landed in Canada for a different set of meetings that had nothing to do with the United States that the man would break down and sob uncontrollably because of what he saw out of the plane's windows and because of what he was seeing out of the windows of the limousine. What exactly was Gorbachev looking at that would change his mind, that would change his mind and cause him to do a 180? Well, I haven't got that far in the textbook yet, so let me look into that, and I'll get back to you with our next podcast. So thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsola.com. Email me with any questions or comments you might have. And if you like what we discussed today, please leave me a review as well. Thanks again for listening. Have a great week.